This is Understand South Carolina, a podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. Today's episode is a little different. We're going to hear about how a major reporting project is done. You'll hear from journalists Jennifer Barry Hawes and Gavin McIntyre, who just completed a kind of journalistic quest to learn about Omar ibn Said. Omar was a Muslim scholar who, at age 37, was captured from his home in Futatora and forced onto a slave ship bound for Charleston. He lived the rest of his life enslaved, first in South Carolina and then in North Carolina. Throughout that time, Omar wrote at least 15 surviving texts in Arabic, including the only known autobiography written in Arabic by someone still enslaved in America. When that autobiography was bought by the Library of Congress, digitized and made available to the public, Omar's story sprang from obscurity. In Charleston, an opera about Omar's life was commissioned for the annual Piccolo Spoleto Festival. Originally, it was going to be staged in 2020, also the year of the city's 350th anniversary. But because of COVID-19, the performance was delayed and the opera will be performed in 2022. But while also delayed somewhat by the pandemic, Post and Courier journalists Jennifer Barry Hawes and Gavin McIntyre were able to take their journey to uncover new information about who Omar really was. That journey took them first to Fayetteville, North Carolina, and then to Senegal, on a quest to pinpoint and to understand where Omar was from. You may recognize Gavin's voice when sometimes co-hosting this podcast. It's been a little while since he's been on the show because he's been busy with this project, which was just made available to readers last weekend. Now, I think you'll get the most out of today's episode if you, of course, read that project, which we will link to in today's show notes. Whether you read it before or after, this conversation should give you some insight into the questions they went into this reporting process with, the translators, historians, and others who helped them make the project possible, and what could come next for Omar's story. So when I initially got brought into this story, I didn't know anything about Omar. I didn't know his, his story, where he came from. So the initial research was just really just like, who was he? And then part of that was his autobiography that he wrote and all the research that had been done before. And so what I know about him slowly progressed over time, but he was a Muslim scholar from the Futatoro region in Senegal and was captured in a raid. I'm not sure exactly who captured him, but he was taken and enslaved in Charleston, where he was bought by, as he describes, a cruel, evil, wicked man. And during his time in Charleston, he would end up escaping and then ending up in the Fayetteville area in North Carolina, where he'd be uh, recaptured and jailed, and where he would write on the walls in Arabic. These two brothers, the Owens, James and John, they end up buying him from someone in Charleston, and he spends the rest of his life there. So that was kind of like my initial understanding of him. And part of the reason why we went to Senegal is like, who is this man who was captured and enslaved? Because when he arrives in Charleston, he's 37. And so he's near middle age, and he's lived a life before arriving here. So, you know, that was a big part of the reason why we went to Senegal. What were the big questions that you went into this project with? What were those main questions that you were trying to answer? Whether or not a clear answer was available, what were those big questions? There were a lot of really big questions about Omar that had to do with more fundamentally, more deeply, who really was he in his hard parts? 
And then practically speaking, where was he from exactly? Uh, we knew he was from Fututoro because he wrote that. He was born there. But where? It's a pretty big region in northern Senegal, all along the Senegal River. Where was he from? On a deeper level, was Omar a Christian or was he a Muslim in his heart? He was Muslim when he was brought over here. He remained very devout, but was baptized in the Christian church of his enslavers later in his life. And so the question remained, uh, did he really convert? Was he, in fact, Muslim still in his heart? And to me, one of the most interesting parts of going to Senegal was meeting with imams in these areas around Futa who could talk about the closeness between Christianity and Islam and how the great prophets of Christianity and also Judaism were in uh, the Quran. And Jesus is a great prophet of the Quran. And so when Muslims uh, came to America and were exposed to Christianity, those names and people in the sacred texts were not strangers. To me, it was really interesting to see how Omar likely bridged Christianity and Muslim beliefs so that he could both be part of a faith community in the U.S. Uh, while he was enslaved, but still retain his Muslim identity. Traveling over there, I mean, we had so many questions we were trying to answer in so little timing. Just, you know, the, the basic ones, because he lives like very vague details about where he's initially from in his life. So we're just like, who was his mother? Who was his father, you know, what was his place of birth? Because he says it's a region, but it doesn't really give a town where he's from. And, you know, he says, I studied for 25 years in the Futa and Bundu. So we're just thinking, like, what was, what did that encompass? You know, who were his teachers? And then just what was his faith, you know, and what did it mean to him? I think that was one of the big ones we were trying to find while on our trip. So, of course, the plans changed along the way of when this would exactly happen. So take us back to last year, 2020, early 2020. What was the plan originally? Well, originally the plan was that we would go to Senegal in spring of 2020. And Gavin and I got onto a plane in Charleston and we're all excited. He posted on Instagram when we were getting ready to leave. We flew to Atlanta and while we were in flight, uh, President Trump announced that travelers coming back to the U.S. from Europe would not be allowed to enter because of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we had no idea that was going on. So when we landed, we headed to get some food before we flew uh, overseas overnight. And while we were getting some Chinese food, our phones started blowing up. My husband and my immediate editor, Glenn Smith, were texting me, are you listening to President Trump's speech and have you heard? And all of a sudden it was pretty chaotic uh, in the airport and we were just trying to figure out what to do at the last minute. Should we go? Should we not go? And it, in those moments we decided not to go because there was so much unknown. And overseas at the airport in Paris that we would have landed at, apparently complete pandemonium erupted and it was kind of interesting because I tweeted out a picture of the empty international terminal at the Atlanta airport. And at the same time, another reporter who was at Charles de Gaulle in Paris tweeted out a picture of the chaos around him and came to kind of symbolize what was going on and what would be ahead. And so the story sat on hold for a number of months as the coronavirus pandemic shut everything down. And at the time, it was very, you know, <laughs> a sad kind of mood because we were very, you know, excited to to go to Senegal in 2020, but it ended up being, you know, sort of a blessing because from that we were able to spend another year 
you know, researching Omar's life and working with our team that would be travel with when we return um, this year in February. So it gave us a lot more time to really dig into the story and kind of plan out more of our trip because we were ready, but I think we were even more prepared this year than I think we would have been last year. And we were also able to have Abdullah Gie, a professor and translator there, join us, who I don't think we would have had when we were initially going to travel. So it really gave us, you know, I think the resources to come out with the story that people saw this past weekend. You mentioned one of the people who was able to be with you there on that team during your reporting trip. So tell me more about that team. Who were the people involved? Of course, we're talking to both of you today, but there are multiple people who really contributed to this reporting process. Who joined you on that trip? We were joined by Mamram Sek, who really functioned as sort of the leader of our group while we were in Senegal. Mamram is a professor of linguistics in Dakar and is just very well connected. He studies uh, oral narratives. He had a lot of expertise that was very important. He also spoke French and spoke Wolof, which is one of the primary uh, languages people in Senegal speak. So Mamram was sort of the leader of our group, and then Abdullah Gia, the translator and Arabic teacher, was also just critical. Abdullah also descends from Sheikh Musa Kamra, who is a very revered intellectual in Futa Toro, and having Abdullah there as someone who knew Futa, knew the region, was really, really helpful. And he, he and Mamram were just really wonderful to work with. Uh, we also hired a driver, uh, Yusuf Baji, and Mamram had a driver from his university and also brought a French graduate assistant who he worked with. So that was sort of our little entourage. We traveled all over Senegal and Futa with, and they each brought expertise and knowledge that was just super helpful in telling Omar's story. And your reporting process, of course, took you to Senegal, but it started in Charleston, and Charleston was the place where Omar and also about 40% of enslaved people who were taken to the United States landed. But it also took you to North Carolina, to uh, Gavin, you had, you had mentioned that, of course, part of his life was there as well. And that came first. So where did you go in North Carolina and what were you able to maybe physically see there? Or who were you able to meet to start filling in that story? Our first trip was in 2020 when we had, you know, scheduled to go to Senegal the first time. And the first trip, we, you know, went to a, a few different places. We went to the Owen Hill Plantation, which is where Omar would spend the later years in his life and ultimately die. Um, we went to the church where he was baptized, First Presbyterian in Fayetteville. Um, we went to, you know, a few other churches where we thought he might have attended or the Owens might have attended any kind of connection we could find. We were kind of going, went to the library there. We went to the mosque in Fayetteville, which is named after him, and attended a Friday prayer service and spoke with the former imam there, Adam Baya, who, you know, who's very involved in bringing Omar uh, more attention. And so we really traveled like around Fayetteville trying to any connection we could find. I mean, we were you know, walking along the Cape Fear River thinking, was this the route Omar took to get to Fayetteville at first? Fayetteville was the place where, like Gavin said, Omar spent his, his later years and eventually died. Did you find the place where he was buried there? 
We did. We did. And it wasn't easy to find because it's not marked and there's no indication of where Owen Hill Plantation was, much less where Omar was buried. But we were able, after some doing, to find a man who knew a man, who knew a woman, you know, that sort of thing, who knew someone who knew where it was. And uh, so we did finally find it. And we were kind of walking around this weedy, viney, thorny area. And Gavin noticed a short brick wall. And that wall enclosed the Owen patriarch and his wife and three of their grandchildren. And according to the family stories, Omar's buried in that area, but his gravestone had had been vandalized or whatnot. But anyway, it's not there and it's not marked. But it was still really remarkable to stand there. It was sort of a misty, rainy day and kind of fit the mood of the place that where Omar died was just so neglected. I feel like some of the things that this story did was address some of the maybe misconceptions or assumptions that have been made about Omar. What were some of those narratives, right, that were that were created about Omar? And maybe what were some of those layers that you that you peeled back of, okay, this is maybe what was told about him and, and this is what might be the truth about him? A big one was like he's an Indian or Arabian prince, you know, this this figure coming from Africa who was, you know, because he, he carried himself with a certain stature there that people was like, he must have been this prince or he must have been, that's the reason why he's over there. He was exiled or, you know, he was a criminal were some of the big ones that we heard because like how would this man end up here besides that, you know, he was this criminal who was exiled by his people and that was like a huge one we heard and you can also see it on the the church records where he attended, they would list like the family and, but they would list him as servant slash, you know, Indian prince. And so there was a certain view that the community had of him or, you know, that they wanted to, you know, put on him for the reason why he was there. You know, white people around Omar really made him into this sort of minor celebrity as they were using him for their own purposes. The colonization society was a really active part of the Owens life, the people who enslaved him. Uh, and they w- had this mission of showing that certain Africans were, quote, unquote, worthy of being returned to Africa, and particularly those who could ev- evangelize there. And so they saw in Omar a tool. They created all kinds of narratives about him, most many of which were incorrect. And it's really interesting. You, if, you, if you read the part of the story about Omar's letter, his first writing that we know of, he asks explicitly to be returned to Africa. And yet all of the white writers later would be like, oh, he's never wanted to return to Africa, no matter how many times we've offered. And yet there it is explicitly in his writing. So it's just, it's a, to me, a perfect example of, of what Omar was trying to say and who he was and how that was really co-opted by the white world around him. And we were trying to look beyond that to see what did he really write, who really was Omar. That was really the the number one thing Gavin and I were trying to explore. Yeah, that was one of the really interesting things about that portion of the story, how people were definitely describing him or forming a narrative about him in a way that fit that goal. And part of that was portraying him as... Uh, having been fully converted to Christianity. But that turned out to be more of a question, right, of if that was actually the truth or not. Yeah, you know, he's very devout Muslim, and then he he is, you know, bought by this very religious family who immediately tried to bring the bring him into the Christian faith. But I think it's also their lack of understanding of 
Islam itself, where, you know, which encompasses a lot of things from Christianity. To me, it's Omar, you know, kind of finds a way to still remain Muslim through Christianity in a way, but to them, they see him as this, you know, fully converted Christian, not really understanding Omar himself, which I think is, you know, part of it. And when you read his words, you can see really how he saw, you know, Christianity and Islam. And also, too, part of this story as well is the understanding of, of how many enslaved Africans were Muslim. Is that something that you looked into as well? And what did you learn about that in terms of was Omar unique in that he brought his religion here? Or was that more common than people realize? I think that was one thing I didn't know that was in fact a lot of you know enslaved Africans brought over here who were in fact Muslim. It's not something like you're really taught. People like Omar, you know, Omar had been studying the Quran for 25 years. He had this whole faith background. You know, he had teachers he studied under to, you know, to learn Islam and to learn to write in Arabic and speak Arabic. And so that was something I didn't know that, you know, I learned through the story. Yeah, I had no idea that there were so many Muslims among captives brought here. No idea. And the estimates vary, but one in five is kind of in the mid-range of the estimates. And if you imagine what happened to that faith, given that today when we look back at slavery and the religion of enslaved people, we think of Christianity, we think of the black church and the just the foundational importance of the black church today. But back then, that was not the case. And in fact, the portrayal of, of most African captives as being animists, which is really the story I think most people are taught in school, is uh, obviously many of them were, but you're missing a whole huge, huge group of people in the faith that they brought over here that's really much more alike Christianity. And in fact, some of the scholars I talked to wondered if that wasn't exactly why that narrative wasn't taught, is because it's a lot more difficult to portray someone as the other if, in fact, the religion is a lot like yours. Going to the actual reporting trip to Senegal, let's just talk about some of the logistics. We are a local newspaper for the most part. We do most of our reporting in South Carolina. Of course, like we said, you went to Fayetteville, North Carolina first. Not as uncommon, but this was a big and not common reporting trip. What were some of the things that went into this trip and, and planning it and being able to you know, be successful there in a limited amount of time? What were some of those, those logistics that, that went into the reporting trip itself? It was luckily through the grant we received through the Pulitzer Center that we were able to go on this trip. And so it was for two weeks. The plan was to start in Dakar, where we'd meet Mamaram and the team that we would end up traveling with. And we spent a few days there before we would travel up to San Luis, which is on the northern coast of Senegal. And from San Luis, we drive eight or nine hours inland to Podor, which is the largest city in the Futatora region, at least in that part. And from there, we would kind of venture out to various towns and places, meeting imams and historians, trying to find out who Omar was. And it was kind of difficult to really <laughs> figure out where to go because, you know, two weeks is a lot of time. At the same time, it can really, you know, go by quickly, which it, it kind of did <laughs> while, we were, while we were there. And so it was kind of like figuring out what places to go to, what were the places we need to go to, what were some of the places where we could kind of like, oh, we can maybe like take a day and check this out. So it was a lot of working with, you know, our team and talking about what, what we were trying to accomplish and where do we need to go and, you know, what would work for the, for the story. I think we had 
done so much planning and just like thinking about what we want to do that really helped us. One of the bigger challenges was the language barrier because very few people in Senegal speak English to begin with. And a lot of people speak French, particularly in San Luis and Dakar. But when you go inland, not as many. And then Wolof, which is one of the other main languages, is spoken broadly, but not as much in the Futa area to the north where we were, where most people speak Pular. So there would be times when we had translations going from Pular to Wolof to French to English. And that was kind of interesting just to see the, the connection of these, all these cultures. But one thing we, we tried to focus on while we were there was that Omar wrote a couple of times a place name, one where he asked to be returned to Africa and one in his, once in his autobiography. But he wrote it a little bit differently each time. We were trying to figure out where this was. And that was what we kind of decided in the year that Gavin was mentioning. One thing we decided in that time was to really focus on where that was. Uh, maybe that was Omar's village. It certainly sounded like it could be based on what he wrote. Uh, so we then used that as sort of a vehicle to guide our travels. And we went a lot of wrong places, but I think we may have found his village or at least came close. I'm um, certainly culturally very close to what his village was most likely like. And that was, I think, part of like the fun and interesting part of the trip was trying to find out what exactly this word that he wrote was. We did go to like along wrong places, but that in itself was a learning experience of meeting various people throughout Futatora. And also just, it was fun, frustrating. I remember, uh, you know, our professor and translator, Abdullah Gee, being like, Omar's making me crazy. You know, he's just like, we're going all over the place. Because like we traveled maybe 2,000 kilometers while we were in the Futatora region. So we were just, any suggestion we got, we were heading out to that town or, or mosque just to see like if we could find anything. place called Dimat Wallow. And we went there and met with an imam who was one of the most learned men in that region. And he read Omar's autobiography in his letter in a breeze, where some people have struggled. He wasn't really great at grammar. He wasn't like a highly educated, trained writer of Arabic. That's not the reason he learned it. He learned it to read the Quran. He was a very educated Muslim scholar. But anyway, so when this imam read right over it, and he said, it's Kape, and Kape is pretty close to here, and I'll help you, help you get there. And at that moment, we all kind of looked at each other and thought, wow, you know, this could really be it. When we went to Kape, I, I think a lot of the things that Omar wrote and the way he described where he was from fit. Now, we can't say for sure because the way he wrote it is, is, is just not obvious enough. It's not clear enough. But I certainly think it's a possibility. And again, if it wasn't precisely where Omar was from, it would have been a lot like the place. What visually did you see there? Maybe some of those elements that said, okay, we can't say for sure that this is the place, but something, something's about it feel right. Yeah, I think, you know, the little difficult challenge of photographing the story is Omar did leave us very few details. So I know, like he says he's from Futatora, so I know like this is where he's from. So what I tried to do was show through photos just like, you know, the people, the place, the religion. There's a photo I took uh, at a chronic school 
which you know has been something that has probably remained the same for hundreds of years. But I thought you know this could have been Omar's initial you know introduction to Islam or just having tea, you know, uh, teenagers having tea, you know, something simple. It's just like who was Omar? What what was his community? That I think that was you know important to show like what he was taken from. So that was was trying to show and also just. Islam itself, I think you can say it's the same today as it was back in Omar's time. There's, I feel like, very little understanding over here of what Islam is, especially Islam in Senegal or in Africa in general. I think there's a certain perception of it, I think. And so I think that was important to really kind of illustrate. And hopefully people will see that. Also, just, you know, visually just the landscape of Futatora, because I didn't know what it was going to look like when we traveled over there. So beautiful place. I You know, I remember just walking along the banks of the Senegal River when we're in Cope, and it just being like this very peaceful, just like quiet experience standing right there. And so that was part of it too, just finding those moments to show just the region. Obviously you, were, you went out with those big questions and tried to answer some as, as, as best as you could, but also, this raised new questions too, right? And you're having conversations with, with people in, in Senegal who maybe had not heard of this person or read his text. So I'm wondering what might be next? Is there something else that might come from this process of, of searching that has introduced more people, introduced perhaps people who have a much better understanding of, of who Omar could have been? Mamaram and Abdullahi are planning to go back to Kape, just them, and to explore more about whether Omar might be from there. Without the entourage, you know, we were traveling with about a half dozen people. And I'm really curious to see what they are able to find there. Um, They're both Senegalese, and I'm really interested to see what comes of, of their trip. Here in the U.S. and there in Senegal, I was really happy to hear a lot of people talk about wanting to build more bridges between the countries. Many people in Senegal, and particularly in Futa, and including in Kape particularly, expressed wanting to build relationships with South Carolina and Charleston. And I really would love to see that happen because there's a lot historically that connects us. Uh, there's a lot culturally that connects us. And would love to see those relationships be built. Yeah, I think the really cool part of working on the story and, you know, just with Omar's story in general now is like there's so many people across the globe trying to f- find out more about him. I mean, we were working with people in Senegal. There are people in D.C. working on it. I mean, in, in North Carolina. So it's like there's a network, I think, that's been really cool to be a part of in reporting the story and working on it. And kind of touching on what Jennifer's saying, I think one thing we heard that was very interesting to me that I'd never heard of or thought of was like we were at the Museum of Black Civilization in Dakar and we were speaking with the director there and he was saying, you know, the African diaspora and the U.S. has always tried to have a conversation with Africa, but it hasn't really been the same from Africa to the U.S. And that was something the museum was trying to work on. So that was something interesting I never thought of, which I'm interested in, like, hopefully can see what happens, you know, through the museum's efforts there and just, you know, over here. I think that'd be something wonderful to see, you know, a conversation about our shared history, where it goes. And also me, I just want to know more about Omar's life. I mean, we still have this 25 years of studying that no one knows. We know as teachers, and I think now 
just more attention, more people researching Omar's life, I think it'd be interesting to find out what exactly was at the time learning Islam and Arabic and what that meant to someone in Futa Torah. So I think the more people read the story and more people see it, I think we'll get a lot more questions, but a lot more answers to not just Omar's life, but a lot of different other things, which I'm excited to see. All right, listeners, that's all for today. Again, if you haven't read their story about Omar, go read it now. Some of the audio you heard in today's episode was also captured by Gavin during the reporting trip to Senegal. You can hear more of it and see footage he shot as well in a video that can also be found at the same link. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. We'd love to know what you think of the show. You can reach us at understandsc at postingcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of the show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com.